Thank you, Ben. Thank you, congregation. And thank you, Jesus, for allowing us to worship a little bit today. It's good to come into the house of the Lord. Amen. I'll go ahead and open your words to Romans chapter 8 this morning. And our title today is that Jesus wins. And I'm not just talking about uh, in the end. I'm talking about he wins now. Because some people don't think that Jesus wins until we get there. Amen. Let me tell you what. He, he, he's already won. I posted, uh, George, we always talk about crazy people on Facebook. I posted a picture on Facebook. said, sermon for this Sunday, Jesus win. And he, had, he said, spoiler alert for those that get to the end of the Bible that Jesus wins. Like, spoiler alert, like, that's the ending. No, that's not the ending. <laughs> that's the beginning of Christianity is that Jesus wins. We don't wait to get to where Jesus wins. That's, he, he, he's already won right now. And so we're going to be reading this passage where, where Paul says that we are more than conquerors. And so as I, um, as I meditated on conquerors, I wanted to do a little bit of a, of a historical survey. And so I wanted to find, you know, the list of the top ten conquerors in history. And so I rattled off about seven before I had to Google. So I want to test your historical knowledge for a moment. You're only allowed to say one apiece. So let me see if you can give me the top ten conquerors in world history. Go ahead. That is number one. All right, who else? Yes. Alexander the Great. I have him at number three. Okay, who else? So, so here's the other ones. Charlemagne, which is Charles the Great. Uh, Attila the Hun, uh, let's see, we already mentioned Caesar, Napoleon, uh, Hannibal, we mentioned some, some other ones that took over after Genghis Khan, equally as violent, Tamerlane, I've never heard of him, Emperor Trajan, and Cyrus the Great. So Everyone's like, I have no idea who that is, so let's continue. These guys were conquerors, they controlled sometimes... Four times as much land. Genghis Khan controlled four times as much land almost as the Roman Empire. And these were conquerors. But let's listen to what Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8 towards the end. I hope you're there. We're going to begin in verse 35 for context and focus on 37 through 39 today. It says this. Uh, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long, counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all those things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And to that all people said. This is a good passage of scripture right here. Let me tell you what, it's going to preach. So I hope you got your uh, front of your, your, your bulletin today so we can follow along with the notes but we're going to look at this concept today that Jesus wins. Jesus already has won. And what I want us to understand about the love of Christ in this context here, number one is that this, Jesus' love secures our crown. Okay? It's not your love that secures your crown. It is Jesus' love that secures our crown. Because it says in the scripture, we conquer through Him who loved us. 
Right? We don't conquer through us who love Him. We conquer because of Him who loved us. Now this is a shift in our mentality a little bit because one says, I'm victorious because of what I do for Jesus. The other concept says, I'm victorious because of what Jesus has done for me. One is about the glory of man. The other one is about the glory of God. And so we conquer because of Him who loved us. This word more than conquerors in the original Greek is hyper-Nike. Anybody have a pair of Nikes on today? We got some Nikes right here. You know what that word is in the Greek? Victory. It is victory. I mean, this is huge, right? You see the big swoosh mark says just do it. That means be victorious. I mean, the best-selling shoe brand... And, and the word Nike means victory. So check this out. In the Greek, more than conquer is hyper Nike. That means excessive victory. That means super victorious. He says we are hyper Nike. We are more than victorious in Jesus Christ. We are more than conquerors. It can be translated that not only are we victorious, but through Christ we are super victorious. So in this document, which we're reading today, which strikes me today not only as a spiritual document, but a historical one, we're reading the words of a former Jew, Apostle Paul, who's been converted to Christianity. And he's sending this letter to the largest empire at that time in the center place, which is Rome. So you've got a former Jew sending a letter to the center place of the empire in Rome. And here's what we've got to understand. Rome occupied land as far as from Saudi Arabia to Ireland. Right? That's a pretty fair, fair piece of country. And they also had, at the time, the largest military in the world. He's writing to citizens, Christians, in Rome. And Rome was, was notorious that had ruthless kings who would wage war over the countries that they were expanding into. And so there was no greater symbol of Nike in the uh, uh, first century than Rome. There was no greater symbol of victory in the first century than the, the kingdom of Rome. And he's writing to the Romans in this letter. Now Rome had experienced unprecedented victory for almost a thousand years. But now I want you to imagine Apostle Paul who was a powerful Pharisee but now he's lost all his power as a Pharisee. He lost all his status as a Jew. And now he's, he's walking around with stripes on his backs from all the beatings that he's received. He's walking around with marks on his wrists from all the days that he spent in prison in shackles on his wrists and on his ankles. He's walking around with bruises all over his body because he's been stoned in various cities in which he was preaching the gospel. And he's had emotional and physical stress of being shipwrecked at sea and hungry and having little to his name except for the clothes on his backs and a few books. And do you know what he tells the strongest empire in the world he says I'm more than a conqueror somebody didn't get it today this guy who went from everything to nothing told the most richest kingdom in the world I got more than you got I'm more than victorious I'm more than a conqueror through him who loved us you see not only do we have Nike not only do we have victory we have more than victory. Unstoppable victory. And you know what the basis of his victory was? You see, in Rome, just like in Israel, the prosperity of the kingdom depended on the success of the king. 
And if there was a good king, the nation would prosper and advance and advance and experience Nike. You see, your, your experience of Nike in the Greek was dependent upon the success of the king. If there was a successful king, then the people experienced Nike. That means they experienced victory in the kingdom. But eventually that king would die, and normally he would be replaced by a dumb, evil king. And when that would happen, the nation's defenses would not be fortified. They would not strengthen the economy. They would not strengthen the government. And there would be no Nike during this time. There would be no victory. Uh, uh, they would be ransacked by oncoming tribes and, and kingdoms. You see, it was times of regression in the patterns of Rome and the patterns of Israel that we see that Nike was only temporary in the kingdoms of this world. So whatever Nike, whatever victory Rome had was only a temporary victory. Because it was based on the king. But here's what Paul knows. That no longer is he simply attached uh, uh, an identity as a citizen of Israel. Because at this time Israel didn't even have a king. They had some half-breed Jewish, Jewish Roman ruler who was presiding over Jerusalem. And no longer was he simply identified as a citizen of Rome. Because of the uh, Pax Romana or the peace of Rome. Did not have an effect on the supernatural forces coming against him. But here's what he knows. He knows like I'm no longer going governed by an earthly king I'm governed by the king of kings and he's not going to get off the throne he's not going to step off the throne so if Rome had Nike because of an earthly king guess what he had because of a spiritual king hyper Nike (laughs) that's like the Air Jordans of salvation hyper Nike super victorious see every time you're going to look at tennis shoes now you're going to think Jesus Christ, victory. I hope that's what you do. I hope every time you see Nikes, victory in Jesus Christ. I'm super Nikes. You see? Let me tell you something, Christian. Paul said, listen, we've got victory. And this king that was not even defeated by death is not going to let death defeat us either. Therefore, death is no longer the great equalizer. Death for us is the great liberator. When you got out of high school, did you feel condemned or liberated? I don't know about you, but everybody throws their hats up in the air, not because they're sad, because they're excited. The ending of one thing, the beginning of another, is called commencement, where you go from one thing to a better thing. You end the training and you go to the experience. Now here's the thing, friends. When we die, this is what Apostle Paul's saying, because our king is victorious, we are through him. When we die, it's not end, it's beginning, it's commencement. There's something better after graduation. Some of you think you got gray heads. Let me tell you, it's just a cap and gown. My wife asked me yesterday, she's going to kill me. She said, do my gray hair look bad? I said, no, I think it looks intellectual. It's a sign of wisdom. It's a sign of years. It's a sign that graduation's coming. Something better's on the other side. Do you know how many times Paul faced death for preaching the gospel? And do you know what his attitude was? He said, listen, you can throw rocks at me. You can throw sticks at me. You can even throw death at me and it still won't hold me down because he said to live is Christ and to die is gain. Therefore, if I die, that means I get the better thing. Let me tell you, death was never a problem for the Christians. We conquer because of his love, not our own love. 
The reason that we have Nike, the reason that we have victory is not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done for us, what he has accomplished for us. The salvation of his people has been accomplished. And that's the essence of justification, that I have been made right with God. I can't make myself right. I have been made right with God through faith. Through the righteousness given to me, it's imputed righteousness. Just like if you came up to me and said, I'm going to put a million dollars in your bank account. It's not because I earned it, but because of your grace it was given to me. That's justification. He done put his righteousness in the bank account. And that's also the essence of sanctification, that we realize our holy nature and our identity is in the righteousness of Christ. We conquer because he already conquered. You see, in a kingdom, it's not the citizens who determine the will of the king. It's the king who determines the will for the citizens. That's so good, I need to say that again. In a kingdom, it's not the citizens who determine the will for the king. It's the king who determines the will for the citizens. Therefore, here's what I'm telling you. Jesus is in control. He's not sitting up in heaven looking down saying, man, I hope these Christians get their act together because things looking bad. No, let me tell you, whenever he was on the cross and he said, it is finished, that means his plan was already accomplished and begun in the same setting. He didn't say, oh my goodness, they're going to put me on a cross. God, what are we going to do? That's why he came. That's why it says the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. His plan, God already saw the cross before he ever saw the world. The cross was there. So let me tell you what, if he can take care of the cross, he's going to take care of me and you. See, when we get to heaven, we're not going to see all the rewards intended for us. We're going to see the reward intended for Jesus. Let me tell you what, Jesus is not the reward for you. You are the reward for Jesus. (laughs) This changes your perspective. You're not up there to see who you want to see. You're up there so Jesus can see you because he earned you and purchased you. You are his possession, not the other way around. I had a guy ask me the other day, he said, do you think there are going to be levels of rewards in heaven? Like, for example, are some people going to get a big crown and those who are less righteous get a small crown? Now, let me tell you what I said. I said, I said, no, sir. Now, Paul talks about the levels of heaven, but we've got to understand that in the Greek and Hebrew mindset, the, the sky is the first heaven. The space was the second heaven, and where Jesus existed is considered the third heaven. Because then it says in Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth. It's not talking about the realm where he existed. That was already there. It's talking about the stars and the clouds. So there's first heaven, second heaven, third heaven where Jesus exists. There's not levels of where me and you are going to be. I'm not going to say I'm going to take an elevator up to visit Dean right now up in heaven. Right? There's one throne, and there's the saints seated around the throne. Now listen, you might be front row or second row. I don't care. I get the same concert. But he said, are there going to be levels of rewards? I said, I don't think so, because none of us get there because of our own righteousness. But only because of the righteousness of him who earned it for us. See, that crown in your head is not because you earned it, but because Jesus earned it for you. And all them jewels in there represent the grace of God of things he allowed you to do. And what it says in Revelation chapter 4 in your notes is that they take off their crown and lay it before the throne and say, you are worthy. There's some people walking around trying to get a big old crown, but they don't understand that it ain't going to belong to them. (laughs) They're going to lay it down before Jesus and say, it all belongs to you. All the praise, honor, and glory belongs to you because anything that God allowed you to accomplish was his grace and not your effort. It is his love that secures our crown. 
Number two, neither death, demons, or darkness has any power over us. You see, Paul has already established that through Christ we have super victory, and that leads to his conclusion that this victory can't be touched by anything in the world or outside the world. So once again, he's not saying that suffering is not real. He's saying that it is real, and listen, it's going to hurt, but in that, suffering does not stop us, nor does it stop God. Because look what he says in verse uh, 35. Shall tribulation, yea, he had that. Distress, persecution, he had that. Famine, nakedness, peril, sword, he had that. None of them stopped God. He's not saying these things won't come against you. He's saying they have no power once they do. Even if they stop you, God still gets victory. In those things... They do not stop God, but we need to establish something that the cross makes our life effective. What I mean by that is that our life only has value because of Jesus. Without Jesus, your life has no value. I would love to debate an atheist to find out without God, what is the basis of your worldview? What is the value of reality if God does not exist, if Jesus Christ does not exist? And let me tell you what, they have no hope in an argument of where everything is subjective. Because if everything's subjective, that means your reality is not my reality. But if there is one true and living God, there is one reality, and we are plugged into that reality. Otherwise, it's pluralism and, and you know, tolerance. And you can't say that I'm wrong, and I can't say that you're wrong, because if there's no worldview, you can go around killing little bunny rabbits for your religion. I can't say that that's wrong. But because Jesus Christ is the way, truth, and life, we have a judgment. We have a standard. So our life only has value because of the cross. You see, there would be no cause for loving our fellow neighbor without Jesus. I was laying in bed the other night, and I do a lot of thinking when I'm laying in bed. And I realized, without Jesus, I wouldn't do a lot of things. I wouldn't forgive people that hurt me. I wouldn't love somebody that didn't deserve it. I wouldn't go out of my way to be nice to people who were snobby. I'd just tell them what I think. But because of Jesus, praise God, I don't act the way I think I should. <laughs> I don't talk to people the thoughts that come in my head. <laughs> when people say it's the thought that counts, no, it ain't. <laughs> go ahead and say it and see what counts. There are going to be a lot of thoughts, but because of Jesus, praise God, I can restraint. James says, he who's, who can control the tongue, let me tell you who, the Holy Spirit, and he lives inside me. Jesus makes our life different. We don't act the way we, we, the world acts. And without Jesus, the only reason that we would get out of bed is for our own self-pleasure, which is simply vanity. There is nothing inherently good in self-pleasure, which is why Jesus says that ultimate good comes from not pleasing the self but denying self, which means that the cross shows us that life becomes meaningful when we do the opposite of what we're naturally inclined to do. That I only find value in life once I do the opposite of what my nature wants to. See, the nature wants to please the self, but the cross says deny the self. Therefore, life only finds meaning by denying self, which was seen and displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ. Without the cross, we'd have no power uh, uh, 
or direction in life. Therefore, if the cross is exactly that which puts power in the individual Christian, then it's also that which takes power from those things that would be obstacles. Let me say that again. The cross is the very thing that puts power into your individual life, and it's also the thing that takes away power from the obstacles. See, because before you were Christian, death was a fear. Number one fear among public is dying. And secondly, is public speaking. Sometimes being a preacher combines both a little bit. That's so funny. I don't want to die and I don't want to talk to people in public. <laughs> That's like number one and two. Oh, let me tell you what. Death isn't a problem. <laughs> public speaking might be. See, death used to be something that, that we mourned. Have you ever been to a non-Christian funeral? Let me tell you what, guys. If I die tomorrow, you ain't got to wear black. I want you to wear orange and pink and yellow and bright green. You know why? Because there's no need for weeping because joy comes in the morning. And guess what? I'm in the morning. You go to a non-Christian funeral, there's no hope, there's no joy. It's sad. But when you go to a Christian funeral, there is life in the midst of death. There is a peace among the people of God that they have not lost something because they know exactly where that person is. If I know Bella's at Grandma's house, I haven't lost Bella. If I know exactly where my loved one is, I haven't lost anything. You see... There is hope and there is joy because the loved one is with Jesus and Jesus loves better than we do and Jesus is more enjoyable than we are. So the very thing which used to have the greatest power now has no power at all. Praise Jesus, death no longer has a sting. We are more than conquerors. Secondly, it's the cross which makes evil ineffective. Not only does death have no sting, but life has no weapon. Because I'm going to tell you what, life is brutal and it is hard. All right? Somebody should have said amen to that. Sometimes in life you can't lose for winning. You feel like a one-legged man in a kickball tournament. That'd be tough. No matter what life throws out you, nothing in life has the power to stop God's purpose in your life. The other night, my wife and I were laying in bed, which is where I do a lot of thinking. It had been a real nice day. And I told my wife, I said, you know what, honey, life is so so short. In the blink of an eye, we're going to be laying in the hospital or in the coffin. And nothing will have meaning except what is lived for Christ. So you know what that tells us? Do it all for Jesus. Mm. There ain't nothing that evil nor ISIS nor earthquakes can do to prevent God's love from keeping God's people. They can burn down churches. They can throw away Bibles. But it's been a bestseller for 2,000 years and I'm pretty sure there's extra copies. And even if not, Scripture says, hide God's word in your heart so that we might not sin against God. And if I go to prison, they won't let me take it there. I better have something stored up when I get there. Last point is this. Jesus' love secures his bride. He says in verse 39, that not height nor depth nor anything else will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the first thing that we saw in the beginning verse is that we are conquerors through Christ who loved us. And he finishes up the same thought by showing us that his love is so powerful that nothing can stop it from accomplishing his purpose. So the beginning of this verse says that, that, that we are conquerors because of his love. And in the end it says nothing can stop his love. Guess what the point of the passage is? His love is successful. 
So I'd like for us to know that it does not say that nothing will stop us from loving God. It says nothing will stop him from loving us. Do you see this? Do you see this in the text? Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus. What does that mean? It means what gets us to heaven is Jesus. Nothing separates us from his love because I don't know about you. You know, there are days when I love Jesus well and there are days when... You know what? Let me, let me just pause right there. Because to be honest, let, let me be honest today. I don't think I love Jesus well on any day, if I can be real with y'all for a minute. Because I want you to think about a day where you have prayed like you should. I want you to think about a day that you have read the Bible like, sh- like you should. I want you to think about a day that you have witnessed like you should, that you have been a dad like you should, that we have loved our neighbor like we should. Has there anybody today that we've done everything like we should? I haven't. So you know what that means? That my Christianity cannot be based on how well I love Jesus. It must be based on how well he has loved me. Because at the end of the day, when I look at my salvation, when the Bible says examine yourself to see if you are in the faith, it's not saying, hey, look at your own righteousness because you know what the scripture tells us? Your righteousness is like filthy rags. I'm not instructed to examine filthy rags. I'm instructed to examine the holiness that God has revealed in Jesus Christ that I believe in. God's not calling us to look in a mirror. He's calling us to look in a tomb. And my friend, that tomb is empty. That means the king's on the throne. Have you ever read the book of Hosea? Hosea was a prophet. Do you know who he married? A prostitute. The holy prophet of God married a harlot. A prostitute. You know what God said about his wife? He said, your wife is just like Israel. Because she has forsaken the one whom she should set her affection on and pursued other loves. And he said, that's just like Israel. Because God, even though he was betrothed and married to the nation of Israel, Israel constantly loved foreign idols, constantly loved the things and structures of this world. And God said, listen, let me tell you, through it all, though Israel might be the prostitute, my love is still set upon Israel. And if you haven't figured it out by then, because I've been preaching through the book of Romans for about three years now, and Paul says in the earlier chapters that we are Israel, engrafted into the faith of Abraham. Guess what that means? You and I are no different from the nation that loved other idols. And even though we are in covenant through the blood of Jesus, that does not protect you from stumbling and falling and walking away, because in the end you're going to look back and say, even when I didn't love, God still loved me and brought me back. Every time I've failed, Jesus has loved me. Every time that you have failed, Jesus has loved you. And some of you here today might be wondering, is Jesus still able to love me after all I've done? Let me help you out. He's able. The groom is able to love the bride all the way to the wedding because he's going to love the bride all the way through eternity. I don't know if that's good news for anybody today. But thank God that when I didn't love well, Jesus kept on loving Thank God that nothing, even my own stupidity, stopped Jesus from loving me. (laughs) Even Even when I questioned, even when I messed up, his love was faithful. 
Because I believe that Jesus could love us all the way to Calvary, then he still loves us now. Romans 5.8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And let me tell you, what if he loved me before I ever loved him? He still loves me even when I love him badly. It don't matter how high your self-pride has taken you or how low your sin has humbled you, that neither height nor depth can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And that love has been displayed and revealed already through the victorious cross where he stretched out his hands and said, Whoever believes shall come. Jesus' saving work was accomplished when he cried, It is finished. The only question today is, Will you believe? My friend, maybe there's never been a time in your life when you have publicly declared that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. If you've never done so, I urge you, as the Bible says, that you confess us before men so that he confesses us before the Father. That Romans 10, 9 says that we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And if today's the day that you're ready to say, yes, I'm a Christ follower, I believe, I just want you to walk this aisle during invitation and say, Pastor, I'm ready to trust Christ. The amazing thing is it really is that simple. No matter how much I grow in the knowledge of Scripture, I still must believe. Every day after we brush Roman's teeth at night, he jumps off the bathroom counter. He jumps, and I catch him. And it scares me a little bit. But every day I catch him. And you know why he jumps? Because he believes dad is faithful. Let me tell you what, friend. You jump today. Because daddy is faithful. Let's pray.